On a long retreat like this, we give a lot of information about how to practice, uh, the details of the techniques that we can use, the skillful means we can bring to practice. But just because of the nature of our minds and hearts and the challenges that we face, there can be a lot of emphasis on working with difficulty in practice, the places we get caught, the places we struggle and suffer. And that's, of course, helpful because, as I said, it's often where we are, you know, challenges and difficulties. Um, But hopefully more of that in the beginning than towards the end uh, or even in the middle, though challenges can come in all kinds of forms and at any time in our practice, of course. And there can even be a sense that practice is about these challenges that, uh, you know, it can be almost a little gloomy at times. Oh no, more purification, more memories and fears to, to deal with, more things that I have to kind of soldier on with and work with. Um, and so Buddhism or this practice can get a, a bad rap sometimes that it's all about suffering and facing suffering and being in suffering. Um, but if you remember the framing of the first noble truth, yes, for the four noble truths, yes, the first noble truth does say there is suffering. But it then goes on to you know, understand the cause of suffering and through that understanding come to an end of suffering. We've said again and again, the Buddha said, now as formerly I teach suffering and the end of suffering, that this um, opening to suffering is very much in the service of understanding and transforming the suffering. But I also think it's important for us, especially on a long retreat like this, to talk about why we practice and where this practice is leading, as in what does it actually cultivate? Not so much what are we purifying and letting go of, but what are we actually developing here? And both of those are what I want to speak a little bit about tonight. And in my repertoire of meditation cartoons that I have been collecting and is accumulating more and more as meditation becomes more not quite mainstream, but certainly more known in the culture, more of them appearing. Two cartoons that I like that kind of represent the dilemma we can find ourselves in in practice. So the first one, I don't think anyone's used it here. It's It's been around for quite a while now by Gay and Wilson, where the, these two robed figures in a meditation hall, probably a zendo, and you get the sense it's dark and cold and maybe early in the morning or something. And one looks younger and looks a little disgruntled, kind of looking around with a puzzled look or a frowning look, and has obviously just asked a question to which the older one is leaning towards them and answering. And the answer is, nothing happens next. This is it. (laughs) We could have said that multiple times on this retreat, right? Nothing happens next. This is it. And then the other one I like is a bizarro. Again, I don't think I've used this yet already, but um, it's a, a typical protest scene. Bunch of people with someone with a megaphone, except in this case the protesters are monastics. And the, the, the shout from the crowd, is, no, from the person with the megaphone is, what do we want? And the monastics yell back, mindfulness. When do we want it? Now, of course we do. (laughs) And there's something, you know, really true about that because we do want mindfulness and we do want it now, but we can't, you know, protest up and down Pleasant Street, you know, demanding it of someone else. It really is up to us to develop this. So somewhere between the nothing happens next and what we want, that's the tension of our practice, of really surrendering Um, to experience, but through that surrender, developing in the here and now the peace and the calm and the equanimity that we actually are practicing for, and that they both actually go together. And that through the mindfulness, the steadiness of the mindfulness, and the deep and continuing connection to and acceptance of our experience, that 
experience of well-being can be our present moment experience, not some distant goal, though of course, you know, we can have intentions and aspirations in practice, as I spoke about, I think it was last week. But it's more important or just as important to look at the well-being here and now and how that is actually a necessary and great support for our future well-being, to discover it here and now. And so there are many lists and teachings that the Buddha gave about this capacity for well-being. The seven factors of awakening that Jeannie talked about a couple of weeks ago, the five spiritual faculties that we can develop, the paramis, these ten qualities of heart and mind that get developed in a life of practice, the brahma-viharas, kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, all different kind of maps for the well-being that the Buddha said was essential for the path. I want to talk tonight about another list that points to this capacity for well-being or the development of well-being in our practice that's not as well known as some of those other lists that we often talk about on retreat um, and how these qualities are necessary to develop as we deepen in our mindfulness and concentration. And that's the list of the five jhana or jhanic factors. The Buddha in his time was known as the happy one. Sugata was one of the names that he was given, that he used for himself. And this quality of happiness, as I've said, is considered deeply essential in our path of practice. But it's not you know, the happiness of lying in a hammock with a cold drink on a sunny summer afternoon. That is a kind of happiness, but the kind of happiness that the Buddha expressed and that he talked about cultivating was a much deeper sense of well-being. And this is an important um, exploration for us. What are we practicing for? What are, what are these, you know, apart from, you know, you can have some perhaps aspiration towards awakening, the stages of enlightenment, etc. But on the way to that, what is it that we're looking to cultivate? What do we want to manifest in the here and now? And happiness is one term that we can use to, to point to that sense of well-being. But again, it's not a superficial happiness. I often teach uh, intensive metta retreats where we'll do that practice for many days at a time. And, you know, the, the phrase in there is, may I be happy? May you be happy? What are we wishing for? What do we mean when we say be happy? Um, and again, to know that it goes beyond the superficial or impermanent kinds of happiness that most of society thinks is happy happiness, but really a deeper sense of contentment. So I've, you know, in my own metta practice, practice of meditation, really looked into this question. And one of the books that I read that I found very helpful um, in this exploration of happiness is called The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People. And the subtitle is How We Choose to Be Happy. And it's by uh, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. There are a couple of researchers who actually live in the Bay Area and um, are very connected to Spirit Rock. They become good friends with James Barraz, who, as you know, we call Mr. Awakening Joy because a big thrust of his teaching is really helping people to find and express a quality of joy in their lives. So he has a whole program called Awakening Joy that's very powerful of not really showing people it's not that you have to change or your external situation has to change just the frames of reference that you use can change to to discover the joy that's already there and so he's really helped thousands of people in that exploration and so he often teaches daylongs with Rick and Greg because their teaching is very aligned with what we are um, cultivating here and what they did for this book Um, is they went to different communities and started asking people, who's the happiest person that you know? And once the same person got mentioned a number of times, then they went and interviewed that person and just asked them about their lives and, and how they developed this happiness that they had. 
And what they found were not people who had lives of ease or success or, you know, constant well-being. They usually found people who really struggled, that had a lot of difficulty in their lives. But each one of them had found one or many ways to keep orienting towards happiness, as in this deeper sense of well-being. And so they distilled these nine choices. And even this language, it's a language that we've been using about intention and about choice, about choosing mindfulness, choosing what we're paying attention to, and seeing the power and the possibility of wise intention. And so they have a definition of happiness that I've always appreciated because, again, it's, I find it very in alignment with how we understand happiness. They say, our definition of happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. It's a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing that you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. So you can just hear a lot of resonance with these teachings about well-being and contentment. Uh, you could put equanimity in there in, in, instead of some of the words they used. This deep inner knowing and responsiveness to true well-being, not the push and pull of cultural and societal uh, expectations. And so this um, exploration is so helpful. What, what are we talking about? When we use these terms, happy, safe, well-being, ease, what do we mean? And how do we express that? How do we cultivate that and literally express it in the here and now? And so in these teachings, we learn that we can actually train and incline and cultivate these qualities of happiness. And here, happiness is just a shorthand for all of these other wholesome states of kindness and compassion and equanimity and ease. Not just for its own sake, but actually that it's a deep support for our practice and our path of awakening. Venerable Analeo, I think we've mentioned that great scholar and practitioner who now lives at BCBS down the road, has a line in his book where he said, the whole of the Buddhist path could be seen as a progressive refinement of joy. Just such a great expression of what this path is about. To develop the kind of joy, happiness, contentment we're talking about needs a twofold approach. And again, I'm going to be talking and repeating some things we've already said, but kind of putting together, putting them together with this theme of um, the jhana factors. But this twofold approach where we feed, cultivate, nurture the wholesome states of mind, and we starve or diminish, let go of the hindering states, the difficult states, the suffering states. And this is kind of our practice in a nutshell, this development of the skillful and the wholesome and the diminishing of the unskillful, the suffering states. And it's almost like a balance or a scale. The more the wholesome states increase, the less we experience of the difficult states. It's just a natural equilibrium that happens in practice. And as we um, get more familiar with these maps and guides and directions of practice, we can start to build more confidence. These, these are actually the signposts, the nimitta of our practice, that there is more well-being more kindness, more happiness, more ease. These are the signs of practice. And these maps are time-tested by countless millions of people. You know, these days we've gotten, I think I've talked, it's hard to remember what I've talked about here and somewhere else, so excuse me if I'm repeating myself, but it's not, you know, we, we've come to rely so much on GPSs, right? I actually don't know how we did without them. I mean, they are really helpful. But they can also mislead you, right? I'm sure you've all had that experience. And so it's really important that we develop our own inner compass, our own inner GPS, our own inner common sense is where 
um, evaluating what are skillful tools to us, when to use the external tools and teachings and maps, and when to rely on our own intuitive sense. Again, there's all these stories you can read of people blindly following GPS instructions and ending up in lakes or rivers or golf courses. I read one recently, a driver in Switzerland ended up somehow being navigated up what turned into be basically a mountain track up a mountain and he got so far up his car got stuck they actually had to bring a big cargo helicopter in and and lift it off the edge of the mountain he just kept going until he couldn't go any further our map is the map of be here now you know again these analogies keep coming but you know now you could look on a map and click a little button and it says kind of you are here and the little thing pulses a little. It's like, oh right, that's where I am. We all need to have our internal GPS. You are here. Where? Right here. Now. And not only that, sometimes you look on these maps and the next thing you can click is explore nearby or explore what's here. It's like, yes, explore this the six sense doors and everything that it can be revealed. How do we explore this experience, know this experience of mind and body with this intention of finding well-being, finding contentment, finding happiness? One of the helpful aids and and, um, what this... these factors that I'm talking about really support in is the deepening of concentration, this Pali word samadhi. And it's actually one of the path factors. Samma samadhi, as in right or wise samadhi, um, is something the Buddha placed as central in his list of factors that we develop in our practice. And the classical definition of samma samadhi or right wise concentration is what is known as the four jhanas, these deep states of absorption that progressively get deeper and quieter and stiller as the mind really kind of folds in on itself and becomes absorbed in its present moment experience. This word samadhi we usually translate as concentration, and it's a reasonable translation, but sometimes in the English word we can have a sense of concentration as being narrow or tight or kind of separating out experience, focusing on this, pushing away that. And samadhi um, has a broader meaning than that. Um, Literally means more unification of mind, steadiness of mind, non-distraction. So it's not narrow or tight. You can have a mind of samadhi that's broad and expansive, but it's still and fully present and undistracted. We often talk about collecting and unifying the mind around a common theme. Um, That's the experience of samadhi. But to experience that kind of mind, we don't need to develop jhana, um, but all of us can probably benefit from a deepening or a steadying of the mind from a deepening of this capacity for samadhi. And I think I've talked a, a little bit about, maybe it was in a Q&A session, about exploring or knowing for ourselves as skillful means this kind of spectrum of practices, where on one end it could be uh, what we call samatha, tranquility practices, where we often take a single object, like the breath, and really collect and unify the mind around that. There are many objects that one could use for concentration in the Vasudhimaga. There's, I think, 40 different potential objects for meditation, but a classic one is the breath, just this single object of the breath. And then staying with that in a consistent way over time. And then at the other end of this spectrum is what we might call vipassana or insight practice, where there's a lot of investigation or curiosity. The mind is quite bright and uh, open to all the six sense doors, and particularly with this framing that we've talked about again and again, of seeing the three characteristics, of seeing the impermanent, unsatisfactory, ungovernable nature of experience, uncontrollable 
that we're not in control in the same way we'd like to be of experience. And so it's, there's a lot of um, changing objects, opening to different experiences, um, and that's called uh, vipassana. But in this retreat, even though the main instructions we're giving are for that kind of opening, again, we've talked about the value of calming and collecting and unifying the mind, of, of knowing ways to steady the attention. Breath, body, sounds is kind of a, a foundation for practice. So we're always developing some level of concentration in our practice. In the more open um, kind of practice, even though the objects might be changing at the six sense doors, what can be continuous is the knowing. This is called kanika samadhi, where it's moment-to-moment concentration, where the objects are changing, but because the mindfulness is steady, that's what's continuous, and the mind can get very absorbed in that kind of meditation practice. In samatha practice, and as I said, with an emphasis on seeing change and and really the, the nature of reality, Kanika Samadhi. In Samatha practice, there's taking simple or single objects and just resting the attention there, preferring those, sort of saying not now to other experiences. Sometimes people use this word Samatha as synonymous with Samadhi, but the way I look at it is Samatha is the practice, this practice of choosing a single object and coming back and focusing, steadying the mind on that. And samadhi is the result. Samadhi is the concentration or the steadying that happens as a result of the samatha practice. And we can see these as two very distinct practices and from one end of the spectrum to the other, they do look quite different. But Most of us are practicing somewhere in the middle, and I think that's a skillful place to be. But uh, what is skillful is to learn really what it's like to open up, to be very, you know, engaged and curious about changing objects, all the different aspects of experience, and then what it's like or when it's helpful to simplify and, and, and come back to perhaps one object or some steadiness or simplicity of attention. And knowing how, again, to move that dial, move that lever, I think is really helpful. For this practice, all we really um, need is what we call access concentration. And that it's called access, sometimes neighborhood concentration, because it gives access to or is in the neighborhood of jhana, but isn't in that full absorption. Actually, in full absorption, the mind isn't um, open to changing nature of reality. Instead, insight really can't penetrate into the absorbed mind. The purpose of concentrating the mind in that way is that when we come out of the concentration, the mind has that steadiness and then can really deeply explore nature of reality. But again, we don't need to go to jhana to have enough concentration, this access or neighborhood concentration, where the mind is relatively steady, the hindrances are basically at bay, and there's there's some kind of... Um, steadiness in those mom- the momentum and continuity that we've been talking about. And again, you know, these can be peak experiences, not like we have to be, you know, access concentration all the time, but just to know that's, that's more than enough for the mind to rest in the chosen objects and see clearly. It's hard to pay attention to the mind-body processes. Have you noticed? They're changing so much. The mind especially is so fickle so fleeting, so beguiling, that we need some steadiness of of attention to be able to be present for that and to keep grounding in the present moment. And so this is what we've been developing, enough concentration that we can do this. And you've probably got a sense of the momentum of that, of the continuity of practice that you're experiencing now that's more possible to be mindful of a thought, to stay with a difficult emotion than it was a week or two or three or four ago. We can really uh, deepen this capacity. 
And these jhanic factors that I'm going to talk about are some of the wholesome states of mind that the Buddha said we really want to encourage, we want to feed. We also talk about this feeding and starving um, with the seven factors of awakening, again, that Jeannie spoke about. But these are another list of really wholesome qualities that we can cultivate through meditation. And they're said to be five qualities, mental factors, that aid or support and in some ways comprise the experience of jhana especially um, the first jhana. And again, going through this list or even naming it in this way may be new for some of you or seem sort of esoteric or just another list. But I think you'll find as, as I go through them, they're actually something we develop anytime we deepen in meditation, anytime in sustained meditation, um, these qualities get developed. And also... Um, not just for meditation, you know, anything that we want to really take up and, and, and uh, cultivate to deep, deep extent needs some of these qualities to, to really deepen in us. And so they're the qualities I'll be talking about feeding tonight and the ones that we want to starve, as in not give energy to, not be um, overwhelmed by, not... Uh, be lost in are our old friends the hindrances. Why I want to talk about them or bring you those in tonight are because there are five jhanic factors and five hindering factors and they actually each one balances another in the opposite list and so there's a symmetry here between the jhana factors and the hindrances and how um, Again, in this equilibrium, at the more we cultivate the jhana factors, the less the hindering factors uh, are manifesting, and, and obviously vice versa. It goes both ways. And it, when I practice or teach concentration, it becomes even clearer to me that if the mind is not settled, if we're finding ourselves pushed and pulled by thoughts and strong, difficult emotions one or more of the hindrances are present. It's, it's really that simple because that's what's hindering our ability to have a sense of ease and connection. We're being pushed and pulled by these different forces. And so much of our practice is, as I said at the beginning, learning how to skillfully relate to and practice with these challenging experiences of mind and body, the hindrances. We always start with mindfulness, that is just knowing that they're here. And we've talked about the RAIN acronym, so helpful, where the R is the recognition, oh, this is doubt or sleepiness or restlessness. The A for accepting or allowing, just the equanimity to say, this is my experience right now. And that acceptance allows us to get interested the next of uh, the letters in the acronym, interested, investigate, I like intimacy, of just getting closer. Can I know this experience? And then the last one, the, the not self, not personal, um, or even just nature, you know, causes and conditions. This is the nature expressing itself right now. And the less we struggle with those hindrances, the less they kind of dominate our, our mind and heart. And so we practice with them, and by the, the skillful relationship to them, these jhana factors necessarily get developed, even if we, we don't consciously know the list. And then by consciously developing the jhana factors, the hindrances necessarily decrease. So there's that balancing that happens. So the first of the first two of these jhana factors are called vitaka and vichara, Pali words. And vitaka is usually uh, defined as aiming or connecting or directing um, our attention, initial application of intention. And vichara is the sustaining or the continued connection with experience. Upandita would talk about aiming 
aiming and then rubbing. It's like directing the attention to the experience and then the sustaining or the deepening of that connection so we can know it more clearly. The literal translations are something like applied and sustained thought. And this can be confusing because it makes it think like it makes us see, it makes it seem like it should be about thinking. But I think in our meditation practice, it's really about using that kind of cognitive capacity of the mind to know experience directly and kind of replace our papancha discursive ta- style thinking with this thinking directed to our present moment experience as in knowing clearly um, what our present moment experience is. Tanasaro Bhikkhu who teaches a lot of um, breath meditation to deep states of concentration will often frame this as thinking about the breath. If you have to think, think about the breath, if the breath is your object for concentration. But basically it's kind of collecting this mental energy that we have and directing it into the knowing of what's happening in this direct way, in this non-conceptual way. This is vitaka and then vichara. So they're usually spoken of it in this pair. Um, the act of connecting and then maintaining uh, the connection. Really helpful to think about them in short time moments um, that we're always connecting and sustaining with a sound, um, with a sensation, the beginning of the sensation and then getting curious about its nature, with an in-breath or an out-breath. And I don't know if you can even remember those many weeks ago when I did a guided breath meditation where we were just focusing on, at first, just the in-breath and the beginning, middle, end of the in-breath and the out-breath, the beginning, middle, end of the out-breath. That's really pointing to these two qualities of vitaka and vichara. The beginning of the in-breath and then the sustaining just for an in-breath. And then the beginning of the out-breath and the sustaining just for the out-breath. And can we sustain a connection to present moment to meet the beginning of the next in-breath? Sometimes if there's a, a pause there or a gap, we use a touch point, but that sense of sustaining, that's um, very much these qualities of vitaka and vichara. So in a walking meditation, it's not, again, that you get to the start of your path, oh, I'm going to know I'm mindful now and I'm going to be mindful for the next 45 minutes. It's for each step. Or sometimes, I think someone's already said, I know I will do this too, if I'm walking slowly, I'll just be mindful to that crack on the pavement or that leaf on the, on the grass. So that vitaka and vichara, just for these short moments, again and again and again. As some teachers say, short moments many times. We just keep coming back and connecting, connecting, and then that sustaining. And all it needs is just enough sustaining to bridge to the next arising, the next moment of mindfulness. So a sound. So we hear the sound, connect to it, sustain the attention, and then the sound fades. And then we connect with the next moment of experience, sustain with that, something else. Or it could be, again, with the single awareness of the breath, the sustaining, connecting and sustaining over time. This is what builds the continuity and the momentum that we've been talking about so much, these qualities of vitaka and vichara, and our willingness to do them, apply them over and over again. Not to kind of feel defeated, oh no, not again, another mind moment, another breath, but just that willingness over and over again, that's all we need to do. It's said that vitaka is the antidote to the hindrance of sloth and torpor. Or when you really get lost, toth and slorpa, you can't even kind of get the words out. It's like, oh, oh. But all of that whole range of dullness and fogginess and sleepiness and drifting and spaciness, which for all of us was really common at the beginning of the retreat. Now probably still here, but perhaps taking slightly different forms, because the initial I call the garden variety tiredness mostly has come 
to an end. You know, the deficit that we came with, the stress of getting here and settling in. You know, I call that garden variety uh, tiredness or sloth and torpor. We can still have it, of course, if we don't sleep well or the weather impacts us or we have an illness. But, you know, to some extent, that's not as predominant as it was. But then there can be other forms of sloth and torpor. Um, And a really common one, as we steady in our practice, this kind of momentum that I'm talking about builds, is what we call sinking mind. Have we described sinking mind here? Shaking head, okay. Sinking mind is a, a, a very common experience in meditation that's an imbalance in our practice of the factors of energy and calm. And it's kind of a shorthand for the seven factors of awakening. You know, the first three factors are the energizing factors and the last three are the calming factors. When they're not in balance, this sinking mind can happen. And the experience can be something like, you know, you're meditating, you feel pretty present. If anyone was to tap you on the shoulder and ask you, you'd say, yep, you know, good, good mindfulness, mindful, mindful. But there's some slight not quite thereness in the in the mindfulness it can be hard to detect or a little pulling away it can happen in a in a split second a little pulling away or slipping off the object and i know i can sometimes experience it it's like someone just turned the light out then you just you know you know that experience right where you just kind of lose it and you would have thought if you were looking back that you were being mindful but somehow something just got disconnected and we lose the thread of mindfulness, the intention to be mindful, to sit up straight. Again, that's lost. And it's sort of like Andre was talking about this morning, the arm moving. Um, You know, you've lost that, the subtle intention that it took to keep the arm upright. The same with this, the intention to be present. There's some disconnect in that and we just can either sharply um, disconnect. It can also appear as just a fog that creeps in where we're mindful, mindful, and then this softening happens. Vitaka brings energy. Each time we connect to experience, there can be this little, almost like a zing, a little, little knowing of connecting that's actually energizing. And that's, again, part of the, the momentum. There's a little positive reinforcement in the clear knowing of what our meditation object is. You know, this is very subtle, but we can experience this. And sometimes we can experience the vitaka in that we're noticing things more at the beginning of things. Often in meditation, we realize something has been happening, like a sound or a sensation in the body, but we kind of know it's been happening and we've just only landed with it. As this vitaka gets really um, heightened, we're more there as things arise, more there with the beginning of things, and then the vitaka can actually sustain and we're more perhaps there for the ending of things also. So it can really bring, be an antidote to the dullness as we're connecting with experience. Of course, if there is this sinking mind, this imbalance of energy, the main, um, main uh, balance is obvious, more energy. Um, but it's out of interest. It's getting interested, even getting interested in the sleepiness, getting interested in what is happening, what, what was happening the moment before I talked about, I think, the three times in meditation where we, a little reflection about what the mindfulness was like and was there a, a driftiness to it or a little of this sinking kind of mind to it that uh, ended up in the disconnect. But the classic sleepiness antidotes, you know, opening the eyes, stretching, straightening the posture, standing up, these are all splashing the face with water, these are all helpful. What One of the things that really helped me when I was having this experience of sinking mind, it wasn't, you know, garden variety sleepiness, it was really this imbalance because it was happening every morning at about 10.30, almost like clockwork. I would find myself in this kind of drifting state. Um, and I just saw the pattern and just saw I needed to do something. And I think it was the determining to do something that made the big difference. What I did was actually just breathe a little more deeply, 
not huffing and puffing so anyone else could hear, but just a little longer intake, a little deeper out breath. It brought more oxygen in and gave a little clearer object to pay attention to. But I think it was more the intention to get interested, to actually engage more with the breath that made the difference. And it really showed to me the value of you know, having a wise relationship with the breath, if the breath is an object you can use, that you can work with the breath to balance energy. We often talk about natural breath, um, don't, you know, do any kind of, certainly breath or pranayama kind of meditation. No, I'm not talking about that. But just using our relationship with the breath, deeper breaths, calmer breaths, breath in the belly, breath in the chest, can be helpful to balance our energy at times. Vichara is the antidote, so this Vitaka is the first, the aiming, Vichara is the sustaining, is the antidote to doubt because it enables us to stay with the experience so we see it more clearly. Doubt in all its manifestations is confusion, is not knowing what's happening, why am I doing this, what should I be doing, am I doing the right thing, if I'm doing it, is it working, is anyone doing it, do they know what they're doing, am I doing what they're doing, are they doing what I'm doing, what are we all doing, how am I doing it, you know, all of those kinds of questions, you know, who knows, and we can get, we can just get spun out about that, and all in that, we're lifting off out of the present moment experience. And it leads to obviously a lack of faith or trust or confidence because we're really um, disconnected, lost, confused. Vichara allows us to sustain our attention so that we can actually know it. It penetrates. It's an antidote to doubt and it really helps us land in experience. So we can actually know for ourselves what's happening here and what's being cultivated and that we kind of what this the rest of the talk leads on to so this sustaining or or clear knowing of experience all of the different skillful means we've talked about that help with that just mental noting even if you don't use it all the time but when strong experiences happen when strong emotions happen to name fear or confusion or resentment, or joy, or or bliss, whatever it is. Simple things like counting, you know, counting the breaths or noting in, out. I can remember being on uh, one retreat um, where I just, I was on self-retreat at home, which has its both benefits and challenges. Um, And my mind was just always pulled out by the things I knew that I needed to deal with when I finished the retreat. And so I just came up with a simple practice where at the beginning of every sit, I would do a period where I just said to myself, here now, here on the in-breath, kind of gathering all of that scatteredness in to the present moment, and on the out-breath now, just this, this moment. And just that sort of gathering of attention, this uh, collecting with the Vitaka and Vichara here, now, really help to, to steady the mind. The third of the jhana factors is that of piti, P-I-T-I. It's usually translated as rapture or joy, and Jeannie spoke about it in her talk on the awakening factors because it's uh, the last of the arousing or energizing awakening factors. It's, uh, it's the kind of joy that's the result of meditative experience and a deepening, a, a steadying of our meditative experience. We often translate it as rapt attention or zestful interest. Again, it's this sort of connecting with the object where whatever our object is, whether it's a single object or open awareness, we become so interested in our experience that the mind rests easily with the object. It's like there's a magnetic attraction. when We're not having to force the Vitaka and Vichara, come back and start again, start again. We have to do that a lot in the beginning, but after a while it's like a magnetic uh, attraction. I always remember Joseph 
talking about the mind and mindfulness, like in the beginning, uh, our mindfulness is like a, a marble or something. We're trying to rest on the top of an upturned bowl or bell or something, and it, it's always rolling off, and we put it back up, and it rolls off, and we put it back up, and there's just that again and again and again. But after a while, the bowl flattens out, and it's more of a level field, and the marble, the ball bearing, our attention can move, but it has to be pushed. Otherwise, it stays fairly still. But then after a while, the bowl turns up, up, up that way. <laughs> it becomes an up a U. And then the mindfulness just rests. Again, it can move, but it really has to be pushed. And so this resting in experience, again, these words we've been using about continuity and momentum, we can experience uh, um, and this quality, this mental factor of rapture can really support that magnetic attraction. And so rapture is a mental factor that develops out of this momentum that builds in practice, but we often feel it in the body. It can be kind of tingling or um, goosebumps, um, sense of movement, energy in the body, kind of uplifting energy in the body, vibrating energy, pushing or rocking kind of movement. Some people can experience certain lights in the visual field, the internal visual field, um, distortions of perception. These can all be manifestations of this quality of pity. And I know that whenever we talk about it, people's their eyes kind of light up and it's like, well, when do I get some of that? Or, <laughs> you know, sign me up. Well, it, as I said, it's a, it's a function of deepening of uh, meditation and it does sound pleasant and it not, is not always pleasant. It can be strong or even disturbing or um, intense as this energy gets going. Um, and just remember, this rapt attention can also be very subtle. So not always looking for, you know, these strong, um, powerful experiences. Rapture is the counterbalance for ill will or aversion. Because it, as we sort of delight in our meditation and our meditation object, there's no room for the ill will or the aversion. Um, and so, you know, if there is aversion in the mind, again, if it's possible to develop interest even in the aversion, can actually diminish that tendency in the mind. If we develop interest in our meditation object, no room for that hindrance of aversion. And part of this is again and again, as I was saying earlier, seeing we have a choice in what we pay attention to, what we're feeding and what we're starving. The third of the factors is sukha. And this is usually translated as happiness or contentment. And it's the opposite of dukkha, sukha. And it has a, I think the root, the root is some, can I keep forgetting what people have talked about? Is it another retreat or this retreat? Anyway, sukha has uh, its etymological origin is the same as sucrose, sugar, sweetness. So it's very sweet um, factor of mind. Heard one teacher describe it, define it as the happy contentment of mind and body. And this is um, a quality that usually develops out of the rapture. We've gotten absorbed in our meditation object, this momentum and continuity builds, but as the intensity of the rapture um, diminishes, as the mind becomes steady, this quality of sukha can sometimes become more available. And it can be a relief even after the intensity of the pity to, to know um, this quality of sukha, this sweetness, um, this subtle happiness. It's a very simple kind of happiness, really more of a contentment. Nothing needed to be added and nothing taken away. So just this sense of well-being, this kind of happiness. Sukha is the balance for restlessness and worry, the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And it can be so affirming to find within your direct 
mental, physical experience in meditation, in sitting, in walking, a sense of well-being that doesn't need external objects or experiences or conditions to be any particular way to find that kind of happiness. So it really reduces this tendency. Restlessness is always about what if I could, more of this, less of that, this wanting kind of mind that's out of the um, being unsatis- dissatisfied with the current moment experience. Sukha is a complete satisfaction with the present moment experience. And just even tasting it for a moment, and I know some of you have spoken about this, just a sense of well-being or ease or contentedness, the gratitude that many of you have spoken about in being here. These are all aspects or qualities of this experience of sukha. And so we can feel that um, potential developing for us in the meditation and balancing this tendency to restlessness and worry just through knowing and cultivating this this capacity for well-being. The last of the jhana factors is ekagata. And this is usually translated as one-pointedness. But again, like samadhi, it doesn't necessarily mean narrow or tight. It's more this unification of mind. It's often actually used almost synonymously with samadhi. So it has some of those qualities that I spoke about at the beginning in the definition of samadhi. Ajahn Sumedho has a a great definition for ekagata. He says it's the one point that includes everything. What's that one point? This present moment. Everything is included. All of our, the totality of our experience, but distilled down to this one moment of knowing, of collectedness around this. And so ekagata is the experience, again, of the mind being unified, with our current moment experience, non-distracted. It can often be used synonymously with um, equanimity. It has a coolness, a calmness to it. Um, and it's a further refinement of the sukha. You know, we, we, we tend to like the description of sukha because of the sweetness of it. But the akagata is a deeper kind of contentment, a deeper calmness, a deeper sense of well-being. And ekagata is the antidote to sense desire, the first hindrance to the wanting mind, because the mind feels complete in and of itself. Again, nothing needed, not anything extra needed to be put in for this sense of completeness. And this can be a really unusual feeling, to have a mind that's not wanting anything, that actually just rests in itself, in this pure knowing, in this simplicity. And so again, it's a turning away from the looking externally for happiness, for these objects of desire that we've all created in our lives, and seeing it can be found in the here and now, in just this mind-body. It's a profound shift in practice when we even have a taste. And it seems to me a more reliable kind of happiness than the fleeting, conditioned happiness of the external world. So these are the five jhana factors. Um, And I wanted to talk about them, as I said, because I think they're a helpful map. But it's not as though just knowing them now, you know, we can grasp after them and, and make them manifest. All we can really put into work, or all we can really put intention behind are these qualities of vitaka and vichara, the aiming and sustaining. They're the engines of our practice, of any practice. And meeting experience, whether it's a joyful experience or a difficult experience, but knowing and understanding this process of feeding the wholesome qualities and starving the unwholesome, the unskillful ones. 
the less we're disturbed by the hindrances. Philip Moffat, one of my com- uh, often teach with colleagues, says, don't be disturbed by the disturbances. So the hindrances will come, but the more we can relate wisely with them, learn from them, they're actually a field to grow in. And we also know and learn how to cultivate and nourish, nurture the wholesome qualities of mind, to delight in the wholesome, as the Buddha would say, really to feel these qualities of kindness or generosity or calm or ease or gratitude. But I think the other important thing to know is in this map, um, as in many of the maps in the Buddha's teachings, especially ones that point to meditation experiences, they have a theme to them that I've noticed. And it's that they always start with some foundational factors that are somewhat uh, need energy or effort. So in this case, it's Vitaka Vichara. They're intentional qualities. They're mental factors that we can intend to arouse. So they, there needs to be some effort or some energy. So we begin with Vitaka, Vichara following. As that momentum builds of those two over and over again, the rapture or the pity will naturally develop. And this can often be a peak kind of experience, an intensity to it. The mind really, a lot of momentum in practice, a lot of energy for for practice. Those first two are the only ones we can control. The rest are resultant. And again, in this scheme, there's often a peak factor, in this case, pity, but the map always inclines. It's like a bell curve towards more calm or ease or tranquility, or equanimity. If you know the list, you'll know what I'm talking about. And the factors of awakening, that same pattern happens. Why I think this is helpful to know is that we're often entranced by what we think of as peak experiences. That's what we want. I want to get back to that height, you know, that intensity, that something was really happening there, you know. And we get caught in wanting that. Yet again and again, the Buddha said, It's the calming experiences that actually are the doorway to deep insight. And so just knowing that for ourselves, sure, it's great to have periods of bliss and joy and pity, but they're just nimitta, signs on the road, signs on the path. And where these path heads is to deeper states of calm and quiet and contentment and well-being. As we steady the mind in the way I've been talking about, I think of concentration kind of like the wind in our sails. It can give our practice momentum, but it also provides an anchoring, a steadying in this non-distractedness that then prepares the ground for this deep letting go that's possible on this path. I want to finish with a poem from this beautiful book that our dear friend Matt here, Matt, Maddie Weingast, is uh, preparing. And I think someone's already read from it. The First Free Women, the poems of the, the first nuns ordained in the Buddha's tradition. Just a great collection of words of wisdom from these great female monastics. And this is from Mitta. It's, uh, her name translates as friend. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. So let's just let the words settle into silence.
give your attention. And if you have energy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.